Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I go any further, I must tell you that the new Material Matters Fair is about to open. It runs from the 22nd to the 25th of September at Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf and is free to visit. But you must register, which you can do by going to the visit page at materialmatters.design, that's materialmatters.design, or by clicking on the Eventbrite link that's in the notes to this episode. And this bonus edition is slightly different, as it focuses on the industrial designer and founder of Layer, Benjamin Hubert, who will be one of the stars of the show. As I've mentioned here in the past, the Experience Design Agency is celebrating the launch of its new monograph with an exhibition at the fair. The book, which is written by Max Fraser and published by Fiden, traces Benjamin's journey from graduate designer to establishing and subsequently expanding his own studio. In the process, it sheds light on the business of design and what it takes to create your own successful practice. Oh, but I promise we will talk about materials too. Benjamin, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Good. How are you, Grant? Yeah, I'm okay, thanks. I'm all right. We have a tradition on this podcast of giving listeners a a sense of context. I think it goes back to when we used to record in people's workshops and studios before the pandemic. We were on Zoom today for various reasons, and I suspect, though I don't know, that you're at home. But maybe you can tell us about the environment in which you work. We'll cheat a little, basically. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I am am certainly at home, Um, actually in the smallest, uh, most sound-friendly room I could find at home. And um, so I'm living in Shoreditch. Just to give you a bit of wider context, I'm a half an hour walk away from the studio. And the studio is in a warehouse space in Hackney, so on Hackney Road. And it's a combination of focused areas, breakout, workshop, and social zones. I'd have loved to be doing this from the studio, but um, it's entirely made of hard surfaces. It has an echo. <laughs> it really does, yeah. Bane of any podcast. <laughs> So you designed this for yourself, your office. Was that easy? Oh, great question. Um, yeah, we did design it for ourselves. Easy-ish, I think it's a bit of a process. Uh, you, you know, we're not interior designers, but we know what we think will work. It's very simple. It's a clean selection of materials, glass, timber, display zones for our projects. And all of the technology, all of the cabling is all exposed. So it's a very versatile area, which you can kind of grow and shrink. And I think that flexibility and versatility is was the medium we were designing with. And it's worked pretty well, although I will say, as we lead up to London Design Festival and the Materials Matters Fair, it has turned back into a warehouse. So it's full of boxes of products and furniture. And anybody that's listening to this that designs furniture knows that no space is ever big enough. So as soon as you start designing sofas, suddenly you need much, much more space. So anyway... It's back to its traditional warehouse form, so surrounded by cardboard boxes rather than just um, uh, the team as usual. Yeah, yeah. And has it been used in the way you anticipated when you designed it? Oh, another really good question. Well, we've lived through some very strange years and continue to do so. This is true. Use case has fluctuated in that you know we have open zones that are pretty broad in terms of use case. So it could be for a workshop, it could be for a team to come together and sketch, it could be for a prototype assessment. But what it turned into when we were able to do so was a sort of bar and social zone. So, you know, when nobody could go anywhere other than work, 
and, you know, light socializing and we couldn't go anywhere in terms of hotels or bars or restaurants, but you were able to meet up with other people. We enable people in the studio to use these zones to relax. So pool table and to be able to socialize, you know, we were working together in the permitted times and therefore people wanted to hang out a little bit more. It was a reaction to being so separate for so long. And you've actually designed post-pandemic products about the situation we were in, right? Yeah. I read an interesting article to say that obviously, you know, we're not out of the pandemic and many parts of the world are still very, very much in it. And from a limitation on liberties and, and all the things that had to and did happen for periods. But the article I read was talking about an afterglow to COVID. And that might sound a bit trite and a bit flippant, but essentially I think the crux of it is about a reaction. So lots of people out there looking for solutions and opportunities in a new world order. And it meant that we had inquiries to do with sanitization and health and cleanliness, masks, a lot of home entertainment and home entertainment systems. And so naturally, a design studio is kind of a weather vane. It's a weather vane for whatever's happening in the world. And it tends to be that you're often doing things a little bit ahead of time. Pandemic is a bit more reactional, but the type of work coming through the door was very much about a moment in time. So working with lots of startups, particularly around things like face masks, face shields, sanitization products and healthcare products. But on the flip side of that, we do a lot of tech in the studio. So a, a lot of audio visual interface type products. And because of the pressure points on supply chain at that time, because so many people were looking for the same chips to drive the similar types of products because lots of people were doing more of the same thing than they ever had before. Some of the work kind of stopped because they just couldn't implement it. They couldn't launch it because they couldn't get the availability to the components. So really a big swing in the types of projects in that period. I think it's kind of normalized now. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find staying at home easy, Benjamin? Um, not particularly. <laughs> Sounded like a massively loaded question, didn't it? I need people and space and things to stimulate me creatively. But my whole time was spent on video conference. And as somebody that creates podcasts and through video conference, you know, it's an unusual interaction, right? And it can be quite fatiguing in a surprising way where you are almost having human contact, but not quite. And I think there's a part of the brain and probably part of scientific point of view, a part of the brain just, that just isn't activated. And I think it's quite draining. So I found the whole situation extremely difficult, but I'm fortunate, you know, I'm fortunate to have a little bit of space. I'm fortunate to have a business to go to and many people aren't. So I had a little bit more space, but, you know, business pressures were real in that period too. So, you know, altogether a very, very difficult time. Mm. I'm going to ask you a question that plugs my own event, which is quite unusual, but what are you doing at the fair? What can visitors expect to see? So even in this period, as we talk about COVID and things like that, one of the other things we've been working on is the monograph. So the book that talks about more or less 12 years of, of work, of my work, of Leia's work. And we are looking in the next week very excitedly to launch the publication alongside an exhibition at Material Matters. And that's going to be a cross-section of some select pieces. The book's going to be there. And it's, you know, it's a really surreal moment to think about, okay, there is a book being published. It is about us. And growing up and at university, you would always long for and invest in those coffee table books about designers doing interesting things. And hopefully some people will think some of the things we're doing are interesting, but to be fortunate enough that Fryden wanted to produce a, a, a publication on us is, um, 
yeah, it's quite humbling, actually. Mm. I mean, sometimes a book like this indicates a particular moment in the life of a practice. Is that the case with you, or why did you decide to do it now? Yeah, so, you know, this isn't a life work. This isn't a retrospective at the end of a career where, you know, you get a huge, um, it's 700 pages long, and it's, um, you know, A3 or A2 size. And, you know, this is a really lovely coffee table book, but it's a moment in time where I've been a a designer since graduate. You know, I graduated in 2006. So, you know, more or less um, 15, 16 years. And we started talking to Fiden two and a half years ago. And they immediately gravitated to the idea. But it isn't a retrospective, as I said, it's monograph meets manual. Right. And, my observation, you know, when I was um, buying into these types of books and still do, is that the ones that I at least read never really told a um, succinct but warts and all story of what it's like to be a designer, what it's like to be in the design industry, what it's like to try and create a business in that, the steps you might have to take, the compromises and trade-offs you inevitably have to go through. And the story that we've put together is really one over seven chapters that with my great friend, Max Fraser, is a bit introspective. You know, it does, does look at the things that, that, that I and, and, and Leia have done, but really it uses that as a vehicle to talk about some of the challenges in the design industry, how you break into it, how you break through, and then how you break out to create larger business. And, and no one talks about the business of design either, really. It's not particularly sexy. It's not particularly widely published. It's not got a glossy image which summarizes it succinctly in a clickbait type fashion. You know, it's quite a dense subject matter. So, whilst we don't go into that into the nth degree, we try and cover all of these angles to hopefully shed some light on that experience, to share it with both younger and more experienced designers in a way that is inclusive and hopefully tells a really true story. The opening image of the book is of you painting a, a watercolour of a, a pair of spectacles. Subsequently, there's a, a chapter devoted to those paintings, which I think have been digitally enhanced too. I mean, is, is this painting, is this an important part of your process? Yeah, so the central chapter, four of seven, is just watercolours. And they are a combination of digital techniques and analogue ones. So we paint aspects and features of products. We then scan those in and import them we may then do some digital sketching around them. It's a hybridization, just like our practice is a hybridization, really, mm. in that we look at digital and service and physical and product. And those two things come together really representatively in the watercolors. And when I first sat down with some of the designers to talk about this process, it was about making or creating a mechanism that would enable design to be a little bit more easily consumed. So, you know, what do you do at the weekend? You probably, if you're into culture and you want to do something cultural, you might go to an art gallery. And art is pretty universal. It's a subject matter over the dinner table, you know, all of those things. But unless you're Grant Gibson or myself, you're probably not talking about design because it's sort of, you can't cut into it and get into the weeds of it. And the watercolors just allowed us to have a really lovely light touch that brought it closer to art, that brought the hand of the maker into it, where we do use loads of digital tools, but hopefully it, attracts an audience that aren't just into the technical attributes of industrial design. Are you saying that you did these for the book or? No, 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 no. Right, right, right. These have been, uh, I don't know when the first one was, 2017 or 2016, right. something like that. So we've been doing them for 
you know, six, seven years. It's, it's quite an interesting medium. I'm wondering why you chose watercolour in the <laughs> first place, in particular. It's a beautiful material, firstly. It's both easy to constrain and quite loose at the same time. You can create marks that are very specific, but also ones that are extremely gestural. You know, when you add more or less water, it flows more or less. And what's interesting about it is looking at how many marks you need to create to describe something. And you'll see when you look at the watercolours, some of them are quite loose and quite gestural, and then some of them have got very tight. And we experimented with both those ends of the spectrum. But it's also really accessible, right? You can just sit down any place, any time, have some cartridge paper, watercolour paper, and do some watercolours. And it's not as onerous as oil painting or, or something like that. It doesn't take, you know, a day to dry and you can add layers to it, just like we add layers in our work. So it's a, yeah, it's, an, it's, it's a nice little, probably a nice little representation of the way we think beyond anything else. No, it's interesting. I mean, I, I do remember going to an exhibition by Stephen Hall, the American architect, and, mm. and he begins his process with watercolour. It's quite an interesting way to go about the creative process, I think. Leafing through the pages of the new book, the simple way of reading your narrative arc is that you move from making lights and then furniture into more technology-based products and, and apps and things like that. Um, it finishes with a pair of smart dark glasses and an e-bike. Is that a fair summation of your career? <laughs> um, I guess there's several different answers to this. Yeah. The first one is, <laughs> pick one. this is probably 5% of the work I and the studio do. Inevitably, we just don't get to talk about most of the things. It is probably more materialized than a lot of our work. We do a lot of strategy and strategic thinking, things that are a little bit less tangible, which is not very easy to put into a book, not very easy to consume. You haven't got a watercolor of that. Yeah, no, uh, working on it. Um, <laughs> but whenever somebody joins Leia and joins the team, one of the things that they will always talk about is our breadth of work. So whether it's the smallest or largest physical thing, you know, a big immersive installation or an in-ear headphone, or it's a digital service or a piece of branding, we do cut across it and we pull these things together in projects when we can. And, you know, whilst um, it's really an honour to, to be able to put together something like this, it's also quite frustrating because you can't put anything you're currently working on. You can't even put anything you've worked on really for the last nine months because you know more than anybody, you know, there's a real cutoff in terms of publications and we can't put in the things that we might think are really smart because we don't have the permission to talk about them. So it really is a slice, a sliver through the things we do. But I, I'm, I'm interested in what other people think. You know, I'm so close to this that I, I hope that people will pick it up. They'll tell me what they think. And we've had lots of visceral reactions to our work over the years, uh, all different types of reactions. And I'm just really looking forward to getting it into open-minded people's hands and just hearing what they think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a moment, and I don't know whether it's Damazine or otherwise, when you went from being Benjamin Hubert Limited to Leia. I know this is something you've talked about quite often in the past. It was like you realised that the design world, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, was going to be too small for your ambitions. You gave a speech at Design Indoor, a conference in South Africa in 2016, where you explained your future plans, why you were changing your name, and you had some quite explicit criticisms of the design world. You presented an in-depth breakdown, almost like a SWOT analysis of how you operated as a company. And you worked out that you'd done 4,500 hours of free pitching since you'd started. That was 128 concepts a year, 48 of which got on the market, which equaled 37.5%. Correct me if these figures are wrong, by the way. It's been a while, but it sounds broadly right, yeah. Yeah, you want to do something to break that model. This is what persuaded you to go in a slightly different direction and change the practices name to layer, right? Mm. Yeah, definitely a big contributing factor. It definitely wasn't about the design industry being too small. 
it was much more about we were being pigeonholed in a certain part of the design industry. And that part of the design industry was particularly the furniture space. So my experiences over about five years in that period, um, observations before and after, you know, even as I dare I say it, as we head into London Design Festival, but more so experiencing Milan and how much extra there was in terms of furniture, how much of the same there was, and how frustrating that can be as a designer, not only to be part of, um, you know, how, how do you make a difference in that space? Why would you add something more into it? How do you stand out from it? You know, really difficult questions, almost impossible, you know, time and place, bit of luck, bit of smartness, people you know, you know, all of those things. But ultimately, designers are problem solvers. And, um, you know, we, we solved the problem of sitting down comfortably quite a long time ago. And my training and my experiences through other design agencies that I've worked at, I just wanted to look at challenges that were maybe needed a designer a little bit more and weren't just so surface level, beautiful and nice, just nicer than, and there's a time and place for really great and beautiful furniture. But I think it should be a proportion of anything you do in, as a physical designer. And the challenge became that it was very difficult to attract that kind of work under my name. You know, once you do a few things, it's quite difficult to get people that come to you to think of anything particularly far beyond that. Um, and it's very personality driven, very personal. And so Leia was born from trying to take a little step back from my own point of view and growing something that could become a platform to explore more areas and also facilitate a business. Was it as simple as changing your name though? I'm presuming it wasn't. No. You must have been on that path before the name changed, right? A little bit. So we'd started to get the green shoots of different types of opportunities, but it was still the minority of the can you create a beautiful chair type conversation? And I have nothing against that, but as long as it's proportional. And, you know, it was really difficult to change the name thing. You know, that was an, a year long thought process. It wasn't easy to find it. It was going to be my initials for a little while. Then somebody told me, if you're going to change it, you know, change it more significantly. Otherwise, don't bother. And it was super anxiety driven. And I remember getting loads of messages around the time, like, why have you done this? You could have been this and you're a bit like this, you know, and mentioning other designers' names. And, I was like, well, you know, what have I done? But I, I hold true to the fact that, you know, now when I think about the things we're working on and we're working on the future of hydrogen power and how that's used for a consumer, we're looking at things in solar and particularly in energy sovereignty and, and how you can become off-grid more sustainably and be more sustainable. And of course, I could have probably gone after that on my own, but now building a team, the team isn't under the umbrella of me. The team is under the umbrella of Layer, and Layer is now... Uh, it far outstrips my personal impact and is something that you can build comprehensive team under it that have a set of values which represents them, not myself. What comes first, Benjamin? Getting that kind of work, you know, the future of hydrogen power, which presumably, you know, you're a furniture designer. I, I don't know how qualified you are necessarily yourself to talk about the future of hydrogen power. Or does the job come first and then you put the team together? <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. You know, it's quite an interesting equation. So, firstly, Grant. Um, I am an industrial designer, so um, <laughs> I learned to be a furniture designer. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, no, 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 but I, 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 know you're, I, know you're, I know you're teasing. I learned to be a furniture designer, whatever your point of view, I was definitely a really terrible furniture designer in the beginning, and there was a bunch of things that definitely aren't in the book, and were just a learning curve. But my training is insight-driven, it's around observing people, and if there was a material that you and I were going to talk about in this, and, and maybe that it will be something, it is people, it's the medium of behaviour, it is society, and all of those things drive the insights to create meaningful opportunities to do something better and make people happier and healthier. And that is an industrial designer. And you're right, day one isn't about 
this incredibly ambitious startup that are trying to change the world and lives through hydrogen. But you do those types of projects in smaller ways, and then you do them in slightly larger ways. But it's value-driven. You know, we talk about our values, we talk about our beliefs, we talk about inclusivity and sustainability, and you attract like-minded teams and individuals. Mm. Were you nervous before you got on that stage in South Africa? You were making some quite quite difficult criticisms of the industry. You'd been working pretty successfully for a number of years. Mm. Was I nervous? Yeah, definitely. I, I remember knocking back a couple of shots of tequila in my hotel room, which I never do before a talk. And I was super nervous about it. Anybody that's been fortunate enough to go to design in Darba, it's pretty rock star. You know, you talk to a massive audience for design. It was several thousand people. They were artists and singers and mega architects all coming out with incredible stories and a track record, which I definitely couldn't live up to or be comparable to. So my whole angle was, what do I know and what can I talk about and what insight can I offer and we worked with a charity at that time, and then we, we dropped and distributed several thousand charity boxes at the end of it. But it's the most nervous I've ever been in a talk, but it wasn't because of what I was saying. It was the context that I was in. I realized afterwards that it was perhaps more controversial than I had intended it to be in the beginning. Not that I shy away from controversy necessarily, but I don't think I got particularly negative reactions, but I definitely got a few raised eyebrows. Mm. But it hasn't stopped us working in the industry. In fact, it's refined who we work with, whether we're working with Vitra or Andrew World or any of these highly respected furniture and lifestyle brands. But yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a hell of a ride. Mm. Why design in the first place, Benjamin? Because you were born in what? You were born in 84. You grew up in Maidstone. What did your parents do? Were you in an arty house? Were you making things? Well, first I wanted to be an artist. Right. And I studied fine arts at school and design and I wanted to be an artist and then realized I needed some practicality and reason why. And, and, and even at a young age, like just some a framework to know why I was creating a thing. And that's where design came in. I actually went to Loughborough University and I thought I was going to be able to design vehicles there and cars and automotive particularly, and then realized pretty much my first day that they absolutely did not do that. And being a little bit gutted at the time, <laughs> I think the roundabout answer to that is I found myself being an industrial designer through a little bit of trial and error. And I'm quite a rational individual. We love creating inspiring, aspirational things, but it has to have a reason why. Right. And I think industrial designers are just, it's very broad. It sounds like a very pigeonholed title, doesn't it? You know, and I'm, Anybody that's an industrial designer has had the conversation with members of their family or friends and think that you design industrial equipment in industrial spaces, you know, that's not un uncommon. And it definitely needs a rebrand, in my opinion. What that quite is, is maybe a, another conversation. It sounds as if you were always going to be a designer. I mean, in the book, there's a there's reference to a fascination with Star Wars yeah. and the work of, of Doug Chang. Yeah. I mean, what were you like at school? Could you have done other things? Are we locked into design? Because hmm. I'm guessing you were quite good at maths looking at that South African speech. <laughs> so, yeah, don't look at the numbers too closely. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a really difficult question to answer. I, I was always very passionate about creating things, whether it was cartoons when I was younger, sculpture, you know, design a little bit later. I was always making something. I was always drawing something. I was always painting something. I was encouraged at an early age to do that. I think that also is quite heady when somebody says you might be quite good at something. And I think that played into it. I quickly got on a track, which I haven't really meaningfully diverted from. And I think that's enabled, I think that's enabled everything, honestly, just inadvertent focus. 
The focus point is interesting because when I think of you, one of the things that immediately pops into my head is this sense of drive and, and ambition. And there's reference to that. There's a passage in the book that says the drive to succeed and impulse to continue to build on achievements was an inherent part of Benjamin's character from a young age. <laughs> and I'm intrigued. Do you ever ponder where this drive comes from? Oh, the big, these, are bigger, these are big questions. Um, so... Hmm. I, I think growing up, you know, I wasn't in a particularly affluent household. My parents had very down-to-earth jobs. So my mum was a nurse, my dad was a carpenter. And um, some of that carpentry and things like that, I think, is, is a little bit influential. And never experienced anything out of the very ordinary. There's nothing to say there's anything wrong with the ordinary at all. But perhaps the desire and strive to find success in a way that I hadn't experienced growing up to provide certain things that I didn't have access to. And I think that's definitely a chip on my shoulder that pushes me forward and creates this insatiable drive to achieve. I know I also have really thick skin and that's been a big part of um, several years, particularly early stage in design career when everyone was saying no or maybe, and that's hard to hear in, in repetition. And it's the one thing that I have always say, particularly when I speak at universities or younger designers, like you've just got to be able to take the nose and just not worry about it and not take it personally. But it is really difficult. And particularly in the world we live in now where everyone comments about everything and you, you just need to stay really true to who you are and true to what you believe in, because it's really easy to get distracted by you know, the inevitable trolling that happens online. Mm, I was going to get into that a bit later, actually. <laughs> I'm quite interested. Why Loughborough? Because it wasn't quite the course you're anticipating. It yeah. comes out in the book and you've just mentioned. So I'm, I'm intrigued by why you ended up there in the first place. So Loughborough at the time that I went to was a great place to learn a really strong set of technical skills. So all the different touch points through the design process, whether it's research, sketching, 3D CAD, model making, prototyping, and then technical engineering, things like that, it sets you up. And it sets you up to be an incredible member of, I think, particularly agency teams. And that's all I wanted. As soon as I went to Loughborough University, that's all I wanted. I wanted to work in an agency. I wanted to work my way up. And it was only the indoctrination of new designers and then 100% design, which shook me out of this mode and awoke the more entrepreneurial spirit in me. Interesting. Because I was going to ask you about new designers, because you, you won an award there. You worked on a, a project with the renowned glassblower, Liam Reeves, yeah. which was like blowing into a light to change the, the level of the light, I think I'm right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> how did you find Liam in the first instance? I mean, he's a bit of a star in the glass world. I had no idea about this, by the way. It was only <laughs> I didn't know anything at university. No one knows anything, really. Uh, I thought I knew everything. But yeah, I don't know. I just looked up glassmakers and you probably won't thank me for this, um, but uh, it was like 60 quid to make three or four glass shapes that I needed for my really thing. Thank you for that. <laughs> and it was a long time ago. So, you know, whatever, inflation, et cetera. But I don't know. I think he was doing, he was doing some really exciting things. You know, he was an assistant. He was an assistant glassblower at the RCA. Mm. So he wasn't the lead glassblower from memory. And I, you know, I was a little upstart. Um, you know, going a bit more like this, a bit more like this, covered his lovely glasswork in horrible graphics. And, you know, took them away and back up to Loughborough and, and new designers. I haven't really spoken to Liam that much since, actually, either. Perhaps it was that experience and this is the reason why. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I wish I did know that. And I, you know, if you had, could have a crystal ball, it's incredible the, the people you meet at, at these strange times and, you know, what they do and, 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 and do next. Mm. Mm. And this sense of craft was important to your early projects, but you never wanted to make yourself, presumably. 
So craft is important to me now, before now, and hopefully for a long time to come. You know, I, I am aware of my limitations. My limitations are sometimes patience and certainly not investing the time in crafting a thing with my own hands. I used to love making things at school. I used to love making things at university. But, you know, following that, I realized that my strengths were much more um, theoretical and much more with digital tools and with a team. And so I had the utmost respect and awe of incredible craftspeople. And, and again, at your exhibition next week, I'm really looking forward to seeing some of that core craft on show with really unusual materiality. It's really inspirational, visually tactile, physically tactile. And I think as a tangent, you putting together that show is really smart because you know, you've got the craft-oriented shows and you've got the traditional design shows and you're doing this really lovely fusion of the two. And I think those two worlds should come through and come together much more often because we don't need and want cold, inhuman, technological, technical objects around us. We want warmth and craftsmanship and reflecting our own sensibilities and sensitivities. And that's where that marriage of craft and design can really sing through. Craftsmanship is different to every individual. Craft is in many different forms, and you can craft something with a CNC machine as much as you can by hand, and it's still craftsmanship. It's just a different spin on it. So, you know, something well crafted with craftsmanship is everything we do, whether it's a bang and speaker, or it's a you know really hardcore technology product, or it's a beautiful piece of furniture. Once upon a time, I, I talked about material-driven work and things like this when I first started my studio because I just I identified an opportunity that nobody was really speaking through materials at that time in such a visceral, um, public manner. They sort of fell secondary to the process. Okay, you design a thing and then you apply color, material, and finish, and that's sort of the very traditional and slightly drab approach to introducing a strong sense of materiality in, in particularly in industrial design. And so I think yeah, material first, material always. You didn't start your own practice on leaving Loughborough. I didn't actually know this about you. I kind of figured you kind of came fully formed. But you worked for the likes of DCA, Seymour Powell and Tangerine. Were you an easy employee? Oh, definitely not. I was probably the, probably the worst <laughs> how, employee. How, how did the difficulty <laughs> manifest itself, Benjamin? Um, just too headstrong, too wrapped up in what I wanted to do. You know, I knew I had ability in certain things and yeah, just probably not quite the right attitude to be a, a really great team player. You know, eventually what happened is I was spending more and more time focusing on more and more of my own things, whether it was in the basement spraying a thing up or rushing home at night to CAD something and just took over and a combination of that. And yeah, just super headstrong and wanting to express myself and explore my thought process in design, you know, good, bad or ugly, but sort of my own. But now you're, you're running quite a significant team. We've got 20, 20 plus employees. Yeah. Circa 30. Circa 30. So what kind of manager are you? <laughs> I should have to ask them. I think people management is always a work in progress. You can always be better. You can always empathize more. And I personally have, have certainly learned the hard way through that process of, you know, back in the very beginning when it was under my name, me and myself and one intern and now a much larger team, just really having to not just manage the team, but manage myself, my expectations, my demands, the ones I place on myself. But, you know, you can't just expect everybody to be like you. People are diverse and individual and they have their strengths and challenges and far greater strengths than yourself. And coming to terms with that and identifying that and supporting that and not allowing ambitions to override creating a sense of culture, community and belief in the team and ownership over that work. You know, I'm not a business manager. 
the business may be doing fine. I haven't got an, you know, a, a business management degree and I, I don't come in it as, as, as a non-designer. I come in as a, as a purist, as a designer. So you know, learning to take a step back has been the process over the last, I'd say, 10 years. I mean, it's intriguing that you, really interesting that you invested really pretty heavily in yourself early on in your career. I think you, you came up with a figure of £40,000 in that South African speech. I mean, you did a project called A Year in the Making, which was shown at 100% in 2009. What did that entail? Oh gosh, I don't remember the um, 40 grand figure, but a year in the making was about pulling together, I think, five, six, seven brands at the time, getting them to make a thing or commission me to do a thing. But but it was half and half. Some of them were just making the thing that I sent a drawing to, but it was about brand association. So bringing together a group of brands that were doing interesting things on a global scale, being associated to them, showing that I was working with many of them at the same time and using that as a vehicle to show that I'd arrived, whatever that destination was. But, you know, (laughs) bringing that together, you know, the, the world continues to be about brand association and elevation. And I think the investment in myself was, I mean, I spent nearly all of the earnings that I had when I was a designer in studios on prototypes and materials. And, you know, I was living out of London for a couple of years and so saving everything and then spending everything on an exhibition, on visiting a glassmaker or, or someone throwing clay. But I didn't think about it like, I didn't think about it at like, okay, so I'm putting this in, so I want this back. I'm putting this in, so therefore it's going to introduce this, this kind of opportunity. It was just all I could do. And the only way I could really express myself and to a degree find comfort as well. And to the detriment of lots of things, right? To my day job, to relationships, it was really all or nothing. And I chose the all routes. But I I think, you know, design is not an easy, anything creative is a challenging industry. And you have to have a lot of self-belief. You have to invest in yourself and you have to be prepared to fail. And I remember quitting my day job at the time at Tangerine and they gave me an ultimatum and they said, either you basically stop doing what you're going to do and you be a senior designer here, or you need to finish and you need to go out and do your thing. Mm. And um, I think to their surprise, I chose the latter. Um, and I had like about a grand in the bank, you know, and just was spending it all still. So I don't know whether I'd recommend any of this because um, it definitely has its downsides. You know, that was the, one of the tipping points. I was interested in that turn of phrase, found comfort. Suggests you were looking for solace. <laughs> um. Yeah, I just find uh, comfort and joy in the creative process, in the things that are created until the point sometimes when they are created and then you analyze them and then you can't live with them and then you need to improve them. But, you know, up to that point, and it's the normal, it's the normal curve, right? But um, up to that point, yeah, I just, it's who I am. And I don't know how else to explain that really. Mm. I mean, this is not ostensibly a, a podcast about materials, normally and techniques, Um You've always been fascinated by them, as you've, you've kind of alluded to. And those early projects use concrete, Welsh clay, cork on a series of lights. What was about those particular materials that appealed? Mm. They're very visceral materials. So they show a lot of the craft and the way they made on their skin or on their sleeve. You know, you can see the tools that have turned them, the fingers that have pressed them and formed them. And they're also quite billboard craft, you know, ceramics and, you know, glass blowing, beautiful solid timber work, you know, they're the mainstays of craftsmanship. And I wanted to explore all of them all at once, (laughs) as fast as I could probably at the time. (laughs) And yeah, I don't know. I also love really textural materials. So things that have a sense of grain, things that have a composite, 
things that have granules in them. So you can see the constitution of the material. And I think it tells the story of the material. It tells the source of the material. And it's always captured my imagination. I can't track why, but I, I love the visual noise of it. But when it's treated with an extremely simple form and application, and I like that tension. I love that the interest in noise and complexity can come through the material, not necessarily what, how you may normally think, which is traditional sculpture or, or form. One of the techniques that does seem to run through your work and in the book is 3D knitting. Maybe for those who haven't come across it before, could you tell us what it is and, and also why you find it so fascinating? Yeah, so 3D knitting is the ability to create something three-dimensional from a loom. And that loom will knit or you weave as well a structure which has inherent three-dimensionality to it. So out of a flatbed loom, you can create something, imagine a box. So you can create something with, um, let's say five sides, but they're in, they're in three dimensions. You've got an X and a Y and a Z, and you can create that all from a single loom. And what you can also do is you can vary the material zonally. So one of the examples that many people use is, is Flyknit. Um, and some of the original fly knits where you join, but, but the difference here is that's actually 2D, um, knitting because the, um, the upper is made flat and then you join it together at the back and it becomes three dimensional. True three dimensional knitting, you do not need to join it and you do not need to make it from flat and from 2D. We've worked on these types of materials and basically designed these materials with some incredible knitters and weavers in Austria and the UK. Yeah, it's basically textile engineering, mm. but you engineer it at a pixel level. You engineer it at a loop level where you can designate a function and feature to every single granule or granulated aspect to the, to the pattern. And it enables you to create things, if, for example, in the furniture world where you can introduce comfort in some place, aeration in others, smart yarns and conductivity in some others. You can create pockets and zones and loops and holes to put structure in. And you can do all of this in a single component with zero waste that the equivalent would be a stitch and sew, cutting panels out, putting them together with all of the downside that entails. Mm. You're also a relatively early adopter of hemp. Um, that's interesting. We're working on a hemp project at the moment. It's an extraordinary material. We've done hemp on the podcast, you know, the, the hemp house in, in the Cambridgeshire uh, countryside. It's an extraordinary material, extraordinary plant. Yeah, it is. And there's lots of incredible sustainability and um, CO2 reasons why it's an incredible um, base material to use compared to, you know, ballpark, if you just want to talk about timber and forests and things like that. But it comes in many forms. So how we've used it is in a non-woven form. So, you know, matted and then producing sheets. And in our instance, combining them with either, well, bioresins and things like that. So you can mould them. We worked a lot in pressed felt in that way where you take a PET bottle, you essentially shred it and then you melt it and stretch it into yarn and then you mat it together. And these facilities are huge and impressive. And then you heat it in an oven and then you put it in a mold and all of the different strands melt and you can press it together and the strands sort of separate and come together to create that three-dimensional structure with incredible rigidity. And I love these materials that can transform, you know, a simple yarn that goes in one end of a loom and comes out as a complex 3D knitted thing in the other, you know, a strand that is then produce into a mat and then can be molded into a huge structure. You know, you see it obviously in automotive a lot and, or in furniture. You know, it's that transformation piece which has always captured my imagination. Mm. You've mentioned throughout this interview and it's also mentioned in the book that you've taken some criticism online. And there's some quite 
quite vitriolic stuff out there, Benjamin. I mean, someone described some of your statements as being quote unquote Trumpesque. Oh, Jesus. And yeah. And you did a project with Airbus that took quite a bit of stick. I mean, does that bother you? How do you, how do you deal with it? Huh? I think design has a role to be provocative to, to particularly concept work when you're, when you're raising questions. I think if you're not stirring things around a little bit, then a concept doesn't do its job. And inevitably you're going to get, you know, the love and the less positive reaction to that. The Airbus one was interesting because it got traction in mainstream media. And so we're talking about in the UK, the Daily Mail, the Sun, like super tabloids. And you think the online comments were bad. You should see the emails we got. Um, I mean, I'm not kidding you. Like, the, I don't know who sits down and writes these things. Just tell the listeners what you were doing for Airbus. Yeah, good point. So we worked with them for a couple of years to create a concept around economy class seating, where we were reducing material thickness using 3D knitting and also integrating sensors and conductive yarn to measure the temperature and movement of a person. So you'd have an app to learn how you'd be more comfortable physically. The seat would support you. But one of the things in it was that we were reducing material and a lot of people thought we were then reducing space for people as well. So we got all this vitriolic stuff was, was pretty full on. You know, sometimes I would take it quite personally and sometimes, sometimes not. I've definitely learned to understand the internet not from a base level functionality, but what it means from a commentary point of view. And I think it's kind of inevitable. I, I know I was an upstart. I know that I was doing things quite quickly in my career. I know that it was a bit against the grain. I know that I got a lot of press and still do, and that can present as many challenges as it does opportunities. But I wouldn't change the thing. Mm. You know, it's it shaped me. It's, it's enabled me to learn. Do you read it? All the stuff on, I don't know, D-Zine, do, do you bother? Not anymore. I used to. In my early, you know, the Benjamin Hubert limited period of time, that five years, I'd read a lot of it. And I don't think that it was particularly healthy. I do also think the work has improved over the years. And particularly the layer years, it's a much more robust set of work. I think it's more comprehensively successful, whatever that means, but certainly does to us. And I've learned my lesson in terms of reading that sort of stuff. But, you know, you put yourself out there. You stick your head above the parapet and you're going to get a variety of feedback. And um, yeah, it sounds like you've read some of it. I read a bit. I read a bit. But I was, I, do you know what? I thought I was intrigued that it came up in the book. And I thought it's quite an interesting thing to admit to because lots of people, not just designers, but lots of people wouldn't bother. And I thought I, I was intrigued. And so, so then I did have a look. Yeah. Uh, and I was, was kind of fascinated. I mean, look, we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, together, which thank you, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Obviously, you have this installation at the fair, and I'm hoping all the listeners are going to come to it and have a look. There's the book with Fiden, but what's next for you? I think making it through London Design Festival, the book launch, and um, the, the business at the moment will, will be the next couple of weeks. I would also encourage people to come and see Max and I talking to Ria Patel at 3 p.m. on the 22nd on the Thursday. Very good. Uh, nice little, nice little plug. <laughs> yeah, well done at the Barge House. I should add, yeah. But I say that because Max has been a big part of creating the book and he doesn't shy away from his commentary either. So um, what's next? We're working on the, you know, some super interesting, complex work that tackles sustainability, the way we live, socioeconomic challenges, and these projects that have lasted you know, two, three, four years. And I'm always interested in moving the needle and evolving who we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And the book is a moment in time. And, and you know, hopefully you and I will do this again in five to 10 years time and we can talk about that next chapter. Very good. Benjamin, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciated it. Thanks, Grant. That's been amazing. To find out more about Benjamin and Leia, go to leiadesign.com. 
I'm really hoping to see you at our big event, the new Material Matters Fair, which starts this week from the 22nd to the 25th of September at London's Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf. You'll be able to see Benjamin's brilliant exhibition in the flesh, alongside a slew of wonderful manufacturers, makers, designers and artists. There's also a great lineup of speakers, including Nigel Coates, Beth and Laura Wood, architect Andrew War, and Naomi Cleaver. There'll be a workshop that shows you how to create paper from orange peel, and I'll be doing a live event of the podcast with designer Michael Marriott on Sunday the 25th of September at 11.30. It's free to come, you just need to register, which you can do by going on to materialmatters.design and clicking onto the visit page. I'll also put an Eventbrite link in the notes to this episode. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.